By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. The end of the 20th century and the start of this century were defined in many ways by the liberalization and internationalization of trade, capital, labor, and information around the world. The forces of globalization seemed inevitable, and the focus of the debate was on who would be the ultimate winners and losers in this new world economy. But since the global financial crisis, the debate has shifted dramatically. In recent years, we've seen increased trade friction between the world's two largest economies, the US and China, starting with back and forth tariffs, and now the US is limiting China's access to advanced technologies, including semiconductors. Meanwhile, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the vulnerability of supply chains, highlighted by factory closures in many parts of Asia at the height of the pandemic that disrupted the production of electronics globally, with knock-on effects to many economic sectors around the world, and contributed to today's high and persistent inflation. So today we ask, is the world deglobalizing? And how will it affect economies in both advanced and emerging markets? I'm William Foster of the Moody's Sovereign Risk Group, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing global credit markets. I'm joined today by two guests with a wealth of experience in this topic. First, I'm thrilled to welcome Shannon O'Neill, Vice President of Studies and the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Shannon just recently published a book on this topic titled The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. And from Moody's Investor Service, we have Ann Van Prague, Managing Director and Global Head of the Sovereign and Sub-Sovereign Risk Group, whose team also recently published a report examining these trends. Before we begin, I'd like to note that the views expressed on this podcast by external participants are their own and not those of Moody's. So with that out of the way, Anne, I'd like to start with you. Let's start by defining globalization. It's a broad term. It can have different meanings to, to different people. So how does Moody's define globalization and why is it relevant to credit ratings? Yeah, thanks, Bill. It, and you're right. It is a very broad term. I think we think about globalization as the intensification of the flow of trade and technology and finance and information and even people across borders, across economies around the world. And the process of globalization really increased rapidly, as you mentioned, but it, it you know, it's, it's really been a hallmark of what's uh, driven the global economy for the last couple of decades. And as you mentioned, the global financial crisis and the Great Recession slowed down development and globalization sort of flattened out since then. Um, what I think is most relevant to credit ratings, though, is, is that globalization will um, and has led to stronger growth and better fiscal trends. And so the potential for deglobalization or a slowdown of globalization or even reversal of those trends could lead to weaker growth and weaker fiscal trends. Um, and there are some also related social implications that we can discuss. Okay, so the report that your team just wrote really argues that deglobalization is, is it's likely uh, that there's, this is very much a dynamic that appears to be underway, but can you give us some specific evidence as to what you're seeing in terms of the slowdown in globalization or, or how it's potentially reversing? 
Sure. Yes. I think in, in recent years, there are a number of events that have ushered in a slowdown of globalization and even, even mark a potential for its reversal or what we would call deglobalization. So starting before the pandemic, we saw protectionist policies that had been on the rise in 2016, for example, the UK voted to leave the European Union. In 2018, the US reintroduced tariffs and trade wars took off. And around that time, the US also tightened immigration policies under the Trump administration. Across Europe, many countries tightened immigration policies also, and there were also additional measures to enforce policies given the influx of immigrants uh, because of wars and conflicts in the Middle East and Africa and in parts of Asia. And then come to 2020, the pandemic created major disruptions to supply chains. We had seen that just one missing component really can derail a whole production line. For instance, the closure of factories in, in many parts of Asia disrupted the electronic supply chain globally. And the brief closure of Chinese ports earlier this year hit, hit many sectors. Then on top of that, if those supply chain disruptions weren't enough, we had Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that had a sudden and severe shock to energy markets, to food, to fertilizer supplies and prices. And the response to this crisis, a lot of African and South Asian economies are imposing outright bans or quotas on certain imports and even embargoes on exports of food products basically to shore up and protect their own supply chains and rein in prices. So that's really a sequence of events that's hard to ignore. And it has its roots early, um, starting in the global financial crisis, but really continues through to today. That's that's very helpful context. Now, Shannon, shifting to you and, and your book, your take on this issue seems to be a bit different. In your book, you note that while the world has become more international, it's not as global as people think. And you emphasize regionalization over globalization. Why? So when I look back at the data over this last 40 years, you know, this, this high period of globalization that we talk about and the creation of global supply chains, I find that there are only 25 countries that really transformed their economies, that really opened up their economies and truly, quote unquote, globalized, you know, that saw their trade as part of their GDP double or more. And there are dozens more where they saw trade stagnate or even decline. They deglobalized since 1982 today. So one side is there's not that many countries that have participated. So that's part of the title of my book, The Globalization Myth. The other side that I find is, yes, when companies went abroad or money went abroad, they didn't usually go to the other side of the world. They went closer to home. They went to countries that were closer to their own country. Uh, and one little data point to, to bring this home, the average good that crosses a border goes 3,000 miles. That's about the distance from New York to Los Angeles. That does not get you to Beijing or Shanghai. And so when you combine this, not that many countries involved, and when they go abroad, they don't go as far as we usually think, what you've gotten is regionalization. You've gotten three big regions, trading regions that have arisen, Europe, North America, and Asia. And those really have dominated our the reality and the trade data, but also the way we should really think about globalization. Okay. So Anne mentioned some more recent, very important dynamics, kind of tectonic movements we're seeing with regards to the relationship with the US and China, the pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. From your perspective, Shannon, thinking about regionalization versus globalization, how, how are these more recent trends impacting that? 
So all of those trends are, are really important. And I would add to that list, I would add automation. And so changing the way things are made around the world. I'd also add climate change, both the effects of climate change, natural disasters or rising sea levels, as well as the responses to climate change. You know, we have countries in Europe talking about carbon border adjustment mechanisms. So basically taxes on the greenness of your product and the like. So things Anne mentioned, add those to it. What I see really is a shifting and a relocating of much of this trade rather than a diminishment of the trade. So geopolitics matters. We're seeing a divide between the U.S. and China and obviously between Russia and the Ukraine. But I see things relocating in other places, not necessarily coming within domestic borders. One of the big narratives around globalization has always been effectively that the rising tide lifts all boats, that in, in poorer countries, less developed countries will benefit from the process of, of more integration to the global economy. Poverty reduction numbers have been pretty dramatic when you, depending on, on where you're looking in the world. When we think about deglobalization, what does that mean for, for poverty reduction? What does that mean for, for global economic development in emerging markets and in frontier markets? I mean, starting with you, Anne, how do you think about it? Yeah, that's a great point. I think that the the effects of deglobalization will be wide ranging and they won't be similar across countries. But certainly the main impact of a slowdown in trade or reversal of globalization is the dampening effect it will have on growth. And this is a problem, especially for smaller economies that are export driven with export driven growth models. Those are countries in Southeast Asia and North Asia. And that includes low and middle income emerging markets that are developing exports specifically with the purpose of moving up value chains or relying on technology transfer. And so they may stand to lose from these trends. The other main impact that I think is worth discussing is the impact on financing options for countries. So if countries are forced to take sides, they find themselves in the middle of a potential conflict, a geopolitical conflict, they may be more vulnerable. And some small open economies like Hong Kong or Taiwan or the UK may also stand to lose if they face challenges basically balancing those geopolitical interests. No, I would agree on, on many of those points. And I would say I think that is one of the, the winners of this last round of globalization really are ones who could reduce poverty. And it was a huge instrument in that. So whether it was hundreds of millions of people in China as China came uh, into the world, whether it was Eastern Europe, Mexico and the like, that really has been a hallmark of this last round. And it's a question what happens as globalization changes. One thing I would say is, as we see these shifts happening, one, much of that poverty reduction was because those particular countries turned to their neighbors. They created regional supply chains that were really robust and were allowed and enabled countries and companies to make things that were high quality and, and much more affordable. So really gain the global marketplace. And I think the real question here going forward is, do we see deglobalization and just a pullback to national economies by companies? Or do we see different countries, new countries brought into these supply chains as geopolitics and other factors make it hard to produce in places where people traditionally did? So namely China here. As we see production leave China, especially production that's headed to the United States in terms of final goods, 
Do we see a bump up in the wealth and production and, and reducing poverty in Vietnam, in Thailand, in Malaysia, or Mexico, or Eastern Europe, or other places, or other countries that didn't really participate the last time around? Maybe that's Brazil, maybe that's South Africa, maybe that's Nigeria. There's a whole host of countries that didn't benefit the last time. And the real question is, can they put in place the policies, whether they're the fiscal policies or financial policies you're talking about, Anne, or other kinds of policies to attract that production to their shores? Okay, Shan, so sticking with that theme, but focusing more on where we are right now, the US, you cover the US at length in your book. As the largest economy in the world, obviously the policy direction that the US takes on these issues is gonna be of major consequence globally. so what path do you think the U.S. will take and what path do you think it should take and what impact will that have on, on the U.S. and the rest of the world? So the United States over this last few decades, as you know, at least our politics suggests, is that we've missed out here, that we've seen other countries gain to our advantage. And we have indeed seen industries and communities hollowed out as exports from other parts of the world grew. And I would argue, and I do argue in the book, that In part, this was about regionalization that was happening in other places that allowed China through Asia to be much more competitive in making things and allowed Germany through Europe to do the same as in other countries as well. So what should the United States do? I think what the United States should do is think more regional itself. You look around the world today and manufacturing has become a team sport. You do it across countries. So you get economies of scale and specialization and different wage rates and different financing mechanisms and the like. And if you try to do it alone, you just won't be able to make a product that's as high, as innovative and as inexpensive as other places around the world. So The United States, what it should do is think about regionalizing, thinking about making things across a number of countries, the United States obviously being one of them. And by doing that, you can grasp, you know, or at least try to take advantage of the 8 billion consumers that are out there uh, and grow the market for that product, even if the United States and the U.S. worker makes just a part of that product. You'll sell more of them and jobs and opportunities will grow. What they will do, well, that is another question, but I do see some movement here in the United States thinking about Uh, these products in this way, and particularly in areas that they have identified as critical to national security. And so whether that is semiconductor chips, where we've seen, you know, $100 billion worth of legislation and and money that's going to flow to to create a new industry that is at least in part in the United States, or whether that is in clean technology and the transition to a more green economy and, and the money that's been put behind that in the Inflation Reduction Act, Much of that is focused on the United States, of course, but we do see in both those bills a nod to an acknowledgement that Mexico, Canada, and perhaps other nations need to be part of this if we are going to be globally competitive in these new technologies and products. And thinking about the the rest of the world, you cover over 140 or so sovereigns as the head of sovereign risk for Moody's. You you see a lot of different opportunities uh, and, and challenges around the world. With regards to deglobalization and, and potentially this, the kind of reversal of what has been this trend that we've seen over recent uh, decades, are there clear winners and losers from your perspective? There definitely are. I mean, you know, really over the last 20 years, the global economy, as, as Shannon mentioned, has benefited from cheap labor coming out of China, low cost of production of goods coming out of China, and relatively free flow of capital and low cost of financing. That's benefited a number of countries moving up the value chain and moving up the development path to higher income levels and and, um, really 
benefiting from that process. Over the next 20 years, if we get deglobalization, that could really threaten to undo a lot of those benefits. And we could see trends like the one Shannon mentioned, friendshoring or nearshoring, really driving up the cost of inputs um, from everything from energy and raw materials and higher prices for labor through less immigration or higher transportation costs or just more expensive capital as technology transfer declines. So this could, could lead to some structurally higher and more volatile prices. Inflation could get more sticky. Um, these inflationary pressures that we're seeing today may result in tighter monetary policy to try to get those inflation expectations more anchored. And again, that could lead to higher interest rates. We've seen a lot of that happening now. And the question is, how much will that stick and how much will it stick around for a long time? Um, certainly structurally higher interest rates with weakened debt affordability, both for highly indebted economies that we're seeing in Europe and in the US, but also for economies that have relied on foreign capital to finance their needs. And some of those are the poorest countries in the world. Shannon, winners and losers of deglobalization, who do you put at the top of the list? So as we see supply chains moving around, we're seeing some winners already. Uh, in the short term, we're seeing Southeast Asia. So, you know, the electronics industry over the last four or five years, you've seen China's share of global electronics sales, and particularly those in the United States, fall significantly. Almost all that's gone to Southeast Asia. So it isn't that the world has deglobalized, but where it's coming from and where it's going has changed. So we're going to see more of that. So I'd say there, Southeast Asia and Mexico have so far been the winners. As I look more broadly, this to me really is a moment where the 40 years of globalization that's gotten us to today is shifting for the reasons we've been talking about, and it will continue to shift as we go forward. And who benefits from that is really an open question. As there's a fluidity to supply chains, lots of countries could jump in. And as I was talking about before, many did not participate the last round. In fact, dozens did not participate in the last round of globalization. And now is a moment when they could come in. That will depend on a lot of domestic decisions. It will depend on if they have or they create the infrastructure to make logistics efficient and, and easy and in low cost. It will depend on their education. Do they have the kinds of workers that need to enter a 21st century workforce and, and be part of these production chains, these global supply chains? It will depend on the policies. Do they put in the protectionist barriers that Anne was talking about earlier, which many countries have, or do they open up and tie themselves, I would say, first to their neighbors, but more broadly to the global economy to allow them to entice uh, big corporations and, and production to their shores? So who are going to be the winners? I think there's an opening for lots of countries to be the winners, but there's a lot of things they have to do in their own domestic politics and economies to take advantage of it. Well, final question. I'm going to ask you both to look into your crystal balls. 20 years from now, you touched upon this, but let me, let me be more decisive about the question here. Will the global economy 20 years from now be increasingly more fragmented and divided along geopolitical lines, or will globalization accelerate again? Well, Bill, I think you pose a really fundamental question here, and it's not clear to me exactly what the future holds. What I would say is that for countries that really have the foresight and the capacity to pursue well-rounded policies related to the flow of goods and people and capital. You know, they're probably going to be highly engaged in a world where we see globalization continue to contribute to, to global growth. And that, that could be quite positive. 
I think there are two areas that are probably new emerging risks that we haven't really touched on much yet that are worth commenting on. One is climate change and the other is social change. On the climate change front, we know a number of countries are really focused on making this transition to either a low carbon or zero carbon emissions status. And that is going to require a lot of foresight and capacity to keep pursuing renewable technologies, to keep implementing measures that are supportive of the carbon transition, to manage climate change and the physical effects of climate change, including the migration of whole populations across borders if needed. So those types of issues are going to require a lot more cooperation across countries than what we've seen to date. And then what we've seen in the context of the Russia-Ukraine crisis or the global pandemic. And if those two events are tests of any kind, then I think we have more work to do on the global coordination front. On the social risks, I think, and related to climate change, this is also going to require significant coordination and possibly support from the wealthiest countries to support the vulnerabilities in the poorest countries to help address vulnerabilities related to social unrest, social protests, income inequality, access to basic health and education. And these are these are issues that are going to come to bear in more pointed ways. Shannon? So as I look at the next decade or two, the biggest change I see is the return and rise of industrial policy. So I do see governments being involved in the economy and accelerating their involvement across more and more industries. So it will be a fundamentally different global economy than, say, the global economy at the beginning of the 21st century because of that. And there's lots of reasons. You know, Anne pointed out climate change. That's one of them. National security reasons, worried about those issues. We see it for domestic equity issues, for public health or global health issues, lots of reasons. But we're going to see more and more of this from more and more countries. So what does that mean for globalization? As I look out over the next 10 or 20 years, what I see is not less globalization necessarily, but a very different set of paths uh, between countries because of this industrial policy, because of these interventions. And you know what I think we will find is there'll be a very few industries, and I would say semiconductors is one of them, where governments will be willing to indefinitely subsidize their own domestic production. But there's going to be very few of those for, for lots of reasons. So most industries, even those where governments are active, where they are trying to influence the way that industries form around the world, they're going to have to be profitable. There's still going to be, at the end, that balance sheet. You have to make profits at the end. And that's why I have some optimism about globalization continuing is that what we found over the last half century is that international supply chains are just too darn efficient and profitable to get rid of. So we are going to continue to see production happening across borders, seeing bits and pieces and parts moving. And, you know, intermediate goods are the vast majority of things that move around today. I think we'll see the same thing with services as those become a bigger part of international trade. But overall, while this trade will continue, what I do expect this next 20 years is the map will look so much different in how countries are connected to each other and who sends what to whom and where. So that will be the big difference. It'll be, it'll be a different world 20 years from now. All right. Well, Shannon and Anne, thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. Until next time, I'm William Foster, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. 
You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.